we need to figure out how to reach people in a way that helps them understand that that sometimes you'll lose elections and that means you don't always get your way. But that's okay because the wheel will turn and you'll get your way later. And that's okay because that's how democracy is supposed to work. We take turns driving the ship and we all do our best at it. It doesn't mean you sink the ship when you don't get your way. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Kari Chisholm. Kari was the longtime proprietor of Mandate Media, a political consultancy for Democrats that specializes in digital strategy and email fundraising. Kari recently sold Mandate Media to two of his key employees. I asked him a lot of questions about his career and how he, over multiple decades, built, operated, and then sold Mandate Media and what he learned doing it. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Kari Chisholm, formerly of Mandate Media. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Kari, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, my name is Kari Chisholm. I live in Portland, Oregon, uh, where I am a political consultant. Uh, I have spent most of my life in digital strategy and uh, email fundraising through a firm called Mandate Media that I started in 2001. Uh, just this last summer, I sold it to my two vice presidents and I'm pursuing a new career in public affairs with Strategy 360. The dream of every political consultant to actually make something valuable enough to sell it. Yep. <laughs> Tell me a little about your background. I grew up here in Oregon. I'm a lifelong Oregonian. And I went to the University of Southern California where I got a degree in political science. But I started as an engineering major and spent two summers working at Intel here in Oregon. But I realized pretty quickly I didn't want to be an engineer. So we're talking about the early 90s here. I graduated from college in 1995. So I was sort of a young person, very enthusiastic about Bill Clinton taking back the White House. And then, of course, watching the catastrophe of, catastrophe of 1994. And that really sort of got me into politics and, and, and made me interested in it. Shortly after college, worked on a few campaigns. Darlene Hooley for Congress in 1996. One of those great, you know, red to blue flip seats. And then I, I was just hooked from that point forward. Um, Why? You know, I'm a very competitive guy. In high school, it was competitive uh, cross-ex debate, student government. I was a competitive swimmer, although only modestly good. And so I like to win. And I like to um, engage in work where there's a scoreboard. So I can you know, sort of evaluate success. And, and for those of us who are hyper-competitive and who care about the world around us, politics is, seems like a natural fit. 
Not a lot of digital campaigning for Darlene Hooley. <laughs> no, digital was, was brand new. In fact, when I switched my major in college from engineering to political science, my mom was pretty upset saying, you know, you, you got this great opportunity at Intel. You're really good at computers. You can do all this stuff. And now you're going into politics. And I was like, yeah, well, that's what I want to do. It's, it's more interesting. It's more fun. And she said, well, you know, someday you will find a way to merge your skills in computers with your love of politics. And I said, mom, you're completely wrong. Computers have nothing to do with politics and politics will never have anything to do with computers. I'm making this shift and I'm leaving the computer stuff behind. And of course, as always, mom was right. And it didn't take very many years for me to figure out a way to start using technology in politics. What was the path that took you to starting your own firm? So uh, after the 96 and 98 cycles, I was like a lot of young political hacks, tired of being unemployed on election day. And so I somehow talked my way into a job at Lewis and Clark College here in Portland, Oregon, as their first ever, what we would today call digital director. My job was to take over the website of the college and move it from IT to uh, essentially marketing. And I worked, the primary clients were admissions and alumni relations. Spent five and a half years there, figuring out how to do digital marketing to basically 17 and 18 year olds was a phenomenal, you know, self-imposed graduate degree, if you will, in digital marketing. After all, when a high school kid is considering colleges, they're trying to decide what they're going to do for the next four years. They can't test drive it before they buy it. And it's really expensive, has a huge impact on your life. That looks an awful lot like an election, uh, a candidate. You, know, you can't test drive it before you buy it. It's going to have a huge impact on your life. And so for me, it was just sort of a look into the future of, of what was coming, of the way that, that young people were making these decisions. So while I was at Lewis and Clark in fall of 2001, a buddy of mine called me up and said, could you build a, a website for this guy who's going to run for governor of Oregon, Ted Kulangoski? And I said, yeah, sure. 30 seconds of haggling over price. We had a deal and I had to figure out how to start a company and, and do all this stuff. And um, it was a side hustle for beer and pizza money at first. And then by uh, January of 2006, I was making more money at my side hustle than my day job. So I, I quit and never looked back. What did you build that first website in? That very first website, I think, was just hand-coded HTML. This is, again, 2001. Well, there were plenty of tools for building websites then, but yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think I, I basically, what I was doing at the college was I was I built my own content management system there, literally spent an entire year building it from, from scratch in a programming language called Perl, and then building the, the templates that the system ran on from hand-coded HTML. I've, I've always been a guy who wants to have my hands directly on the, on the code Eventually, fairly quickly uh, at Mandate Media, I built another CMS for my own purposes. Used that tool from about 2004 to probably about 2009 or 10 when we shifted to uh, a platform using something called Django as a sort of a content management building tool. I remember back in those days, which I was also doing political tech, that there were a lot of firms that built websites and did digital strategy. Who did you find yourself most up against? And what was that competitive history like? I didn't find myself up against anybody, really, because I was here in Oregon. And at the time, I was just trying to build a business in Oregon. My wife and I got married in 2003. And one of the things she said to me is, you have to promise me that we'll never move to Washington, D.C. 
And I agreed to that with one exception that political hacks understand, but civilians don't, which is unless the president personally asks. She agreed to that. It's never happened. Uh, I don't think it was ever come close, but that was an important exception for, for me. You know, so in those early days, I was really just building a, a business here in Oregon. Uh, also launched a blog. That was when blogs were a big deal in 2004. Uh, some friends and I started something called Blue Oregon, which ended up at the time becoming the sort of dominant political commentary site in Oregon. And we, of course, had a huge race to you know, flip the Oregon House in 2006, led by the Democratic leader, Jeff Merkley. He became speaker. And then in 2008, the epic you know, U.S. Senate race of Jeff Merkley versus Senator Gordon Smith, in which Oregonians flipped the U.S. Senate seat for the first time in 40 years. I was part of all of that with Jeff Merkley, and it was truly a sort of an epic, life-changing um, uh, set of experiences. And he and I are still friends and colleagues, and, and I just am proud every day that I, I watch him at work. I also had a chance to work with Senator Wyden, Senator Ron, Ron Wyden. I had been an intern for him in 1993 while I was in college. I was his driver in 1995 in his Senate race, also against Gordon Smith. And by 2004, I picked up the digital work for Senator Wyden. So I very quickly had both of our U.S. senators, and, and they are still clients of the firm Mandate Media, and both still friends. And they and when you when you when you land both senators, you quickly build a, a business in the state, and then from there it grew. And Mandate Media um, had an opportunity to work with dozens of congressional campaigns all across the country. Ultimately, over the, the ensuing twenty years, what do you think changed the most from your early websites and your early digital work? Just sort of trace the arc. I know it's hard; it's complicated, but like from the beginning, what's happening? In technology, what's happening in the digital world? What's happening with your firm? How do things go over the story of Mandate Media? Yeah, I mean, so again, Mandate Media was founded before Facebook, Twitter, before YouTube. YouTube didn't exist on the day John Kerry lost the presidency in 2004. It was founded in January of 2005, before Act Blue. So in those very earliest days, it was really, you know, build a website. And you got to figure out all these things. How do, you, how do you get a video on a website without crashing your server? How do you take money? And we were experimenting with PayPal a lot back then. But basically, it's trying to get stuff on the internet. And then a lot of those early days, it was really about trying to figure out how do you, especially as blogs started happening. And that was how people were sort of finding community and finding conversation. Digital was about like organizing all these little bloggers. I remember in 2007 and eight for Jeff Merkley, I organized an entire like local blogosphere, pulling together some people who who had blogs and getting other people to start them, uh, so we could create this sort of like echo chamber around the Merkley campaign, and then reaching out across the country. And well, then what happened, of course, is is the blog started to fade as Facebook came online, and and people who cared about politics wanted to talk about it with their friends and not strangers. So Facebook comes online and dramatically changes everything about how we communicate, including in politics. And as, as that happened, we really saw the rise of email marketing and email fundraising. We suddenly had a way to build an email list. I mean, I think that first Merkley campaign in 08, we had an email list of probably 20,000 people, which today you wouldn't run for state senate with that kind of a list. And so you know, we had a way to build email lists, and that's when it really sort of take, started to take off. Twitter comes online in about 2010 or so. It really sort of explodes in 2010, particularly as Republicans 
realized they could use Twitter to organize uh, their, you know, their opposition to Barack Obama. What we saw then was, you know, over this last decade was this explosion in email fundraising. And in the early days, that was tremendously powerful. It, it was a, a way for candidates who were otherwise would not be funded to get into the game. But of course, I don't have to tell anybody uh, who's listening to this podcast, what we've seen since then is the sort of collapse of good behavior among the email firms. Everybody's chasing uh, a downward spiral. We're engaged in a massive tragedy of the commons where, of course, the incentive for every individual candidate or consulting firm is to send more emails, get more shrill about asking for money, and it's killing the overall ecosystem for fundraising. I think that was about to happen in 2015, 16. Um, and then Donald Trump rejuvenated everything. He, he's such a dramatic threat to our democracy that Democrats and progressives got fired up. And of course, they gave so much money, we all doubled down on it. Uh, it was a great time to be an email fundraiser. Going back to that blog, there was a point where in many, many states, there was sort of the go-to political information blog. I remember there was one in Colorado, there's one in New Jersey, I think probably most places that you looked. That must have been a pretty fun place to be. Tell me a little bit about that story. The era of the state level and local blogs was fantastic. I actually built a little website called leftyblogs.com. It's long gone now, but it was actually aggregating all those local blogs into state-based feeds because there were so many of them. And it was this place where 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 young people in particular, but folks of all ages, I would say, but mostly young people who had something to say could find an audience. If you were interesting and if you had maybe new information or a new way of approaching uh, the world, you could build an audience. And it was absolutely exhilarating. I think I wrote about a million words on Blue Oregon over about a decade. Like, literally every day I'd get in there and I would right away talk about what's going on in the world. And this is while I was building my consulting firm. And so that meant that I was getting a lot of attention, a lot of it good, some of it bad. There are still people who like hate me for something I wrote back in like, you know, 2009 or something. Um, and that's okay. It led to this sort of community across the country of, of these local bloggers. And we would share ideas. We would sort of invite folks to come in. And when you had a tough race in your neck of the woods, other folks from around the country would, would connect in. And again, it was the beginnings of this sort of community of progressives that I think really changed our politics. It's, I think, hard for, for young people today to really appreciate how far we've come. They look at the politics and, you know, politics is always about big institutions and establishment players and where's the, the big money. But it was it's a whole lot more accessible, a whole lot more progressive than it used to be. We really were in a world where our politics was dominated by large institutions, big corporations um, in a way that is not true today. Today, there's at least there's a counter argument and a counterweight to that. The blog community thing that happened in the early 2000s and then the, the rise of sort of democratized email fundraising did change all that. There were also national political blogs on the left, the MyDDs and the Daily Coasts and a lot of them to different degrees of success. What was the relationship you had with them or did you have one? I did. In fact, the folks at MyDD and, and Daily Coast are still friends uh, to this day. Um, they uh, And there are a lot of them. You're right. Many who have gone away. There was this, there, there were 
Mighty D and Daily Coast, the name of those two, were both sort of community type sites, lots of different writers. And then you had other blogs that were the province of a single writer who was who had a unique take on the world. I'm thinking of people like Digby or Atreus. We're still writing, out still doing their thing. Josh Marshall was one who was, had his, a solo blog. And then, of course, it turned into Talking Points Memo, which is now much more of a sort of a journalistic enterprise. In those early days, we all kind of knew each other. I mean, Ezra Klein is another one who was this young, young upstart blogger kid, really, who now, of course, you know, is an impresario at the New York Times. But we all knew each other and we all sort of were on various listservs together and, and showing up at, you know, things like Netroots Nation together. And it was... I would say a pretty heady time in that sort of 2006 to 2012 zone where the world was clearly changing in front of our eyes and we were inventing new ways to communicate, new ways to organize, new ways to fundraise and dramatically shifting our politics. I I still remember in the middle of that 2008 race, I'm over here working for Jeff Merkley on one hand, blogging about the race on Blue Oregon. And somebody said to me, well, you know, Chuck Schumer reads your blog every day. He knows this is the best place to get information about the Senate race. And suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, I, I really do need to be making sure I get all those typos cleaned up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's amazing the way, in a certain sense, journalism became permeable, became like it got disintermediated, right? You could reach people directly with information that didn't have to be in the note in the local newspaper, commissioned by an editor, written by a paid newspaper person and so on. On the other hand, it wasn't terribly well compensated most of the time, but yours was kind of a business too, right? Your blog? Yeah. Blue Oregon made a little money. I mean, it never made any real money. It was probably at its highest peak, five or 600 bucks a month, which is fine, but it wasn't necessarily a business to, to, to live on. Uh, that's really where the, the political consulting was the, was the bread and butter of my life. I do think that, that there's an interesting question to have there that about, yeah, we disintermediated journalism. And I look back on it now and, you know, it was a heady time. And I think we were doing incredible things for democracy. At the same time, you know, we were part of the collapse of journalism today as a as an economic enterprise. I mean, it's really hard to make money in journalism today, certainly as a journalist. Uh, and, and that includes also then as, as a publication. And only the biggest have survived. There's all kinds of ways to diagnose that particular problem. But certainly the the way that communication technology made it possible for anyone to be a publisher suddenly devalues the business of being a publisher. Do you think that Substack and things like that medium are successors to that blog stuff? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, the blogs sort of died in many ways, particularly the local political blogs died when Facebook came online and Twitter came online uh, because people wanted sort of to talk to their friends and it's sort of more accessible to be able to whip off a three sentence take instead of a five paragraph take that people were expecting on on every blog except for HES. HES always was a one sentence guy. We're sort of like rebounding or turning that corner again. And suddenly people are wanting longer form. They're sort of frustrated with the way that Twitter demands snark and Facebook demands happy, happy you know, joy, joy. And they're wanting a long form kind of analysis. And so, yes, Medium and Substack and and, and venues like that are, I, I think, filling that hole for people who want a deeper take on things. Um, it doesn't feel quite the same sort of heady, you know, everybody's a volunteer, we're all just figuring it out together kind of thing. It, it feels like everybody's running a Substack and trying to figure out how to pay wallet so they can, you know, 
scrape together a few bucks. And some people, a few people, like almost in any entertainment sort of medium, are making a lot, but most people are doing it for free. Yeah, that's probably the the power law curve that exists almost almost everywhere. Is a few people making money and everybody else does it for free. <laughs> kind of like my podcast. Tell me about Mandate Media as a company. At some point, it goes from you to at least two vice presidents, from what I can discern. But like, how did it grow over time? Was it profitable? What did you like and not like about it? Yeah, so I, I went full time in early 2006, and by 2007, I'd hired my first employee, a, a kid straight out of college named Michael Richardson, who was a sort of a brilliant technologist. He left shortly thereafter uh, to go chase his fame and fortune, and and I brought on Megan Lamar in 2009. Megan had been my work study student at Lewiston Clark College, and then she worked at Echo Ditto and at um, NARAL. And she joined me from Washington D.C., where she opened our D.C. office, as it were you know, basically her living room couch. She's been at Bandit Media ever since. So uh, 14 years now, and she's one of the two co-owners of, of Mandate Media today. We started to just, just take off, you know, after 2008 uh, and having two U.S. senators being part of an epic, you know, flipping of a Senate race, people started to, around the country started to want to talk to me about what we could do. And, you know, we were part of a, of a, of a cadre of of digital firms that were really figuring out how to do email fundraising. And over the years, ended up working with dozens of congressional campaigns all across the country. Some of the biggest names in the biz, for example, Joe Kennedy, uh, the third is, is one of our, one of my favorite clients that I worked with, worked for him, with him for about six years until that Senate race, which went, you know, sad, sideways and badly for him, but really ended up building actually a, a practice that it's funny how you get referrals, right? And so we, um, Suddenly, I found ourselves in the position of being the the biggest digital firm in Massachusetts and on Long Island, and sort of finding our spots, right? And and um, really working across the country. Um, at our peak, we were at about twelve people, and always in Portland, Oregon. And what that meant was, other than Megan in D.C., everybody I hired was in Portland. I guess there were a couple other people in D.C., but it's almost always in Portland. And that meant one that I. I couldn't hire people who had experience in what we were doing, unless there was somebody wanting to move from somewhere to Portland. But really, it was I, I spent a career hiring people who were smart and capable and good writers who cared about politics but didn't know how to do you know digital fundraising. And then I trained them. And one of those folks was a guy named Craig Dorfman, uh, who had been a high school math and English teacher. And Craig came to me shortly after Trump was elected. He applied for a senior strategist position. I said, I, I don't know what to do, but I'm really mad about Donald Trump. We almost hired him, but decided couldn't do that in the senior role. Couldn't tell the senators that I'd hired a person with no experience as their senior strategist. But a couple months later, I had the, the non-senior the sort of, uh, strategist role available, and I just short-circuited the hiring process, hired Craig on the spot. Six months after that, I think it was, maybe eight months promoted in the senior status role. And uh, today is the other co-owner of Mandate Media. And he has proven to be an extraordinary political strategist, incredible writer. He's a former high school English and math teacher. That's exactly what you want in a digital uh, strategist. And he's an incredible teacher to the young people that we bring in. We bring in lots of young people and have to train them how to do this work. And, and he's exactly the guy to do that. Sometimes it's a better fit with a firm, particularly a small firm, to kind of grow your own expertise internally. Have you ever hired somebody who 
had that expertise that you didn't teach? I don't think so. I'm, I'm sure now I'm going to, somebody's going to listen to this podcast and remind me of a name, but I, no, I, I don't think so. We had a few folks who boomeranged in and out, who would start here and then go do something else and come back. There were certain couple of times where I tried to hire somebody from another firm, often in a remote sort of scenario. That very rarely, I don't think ever worked out. We was very much growing our own. I think about the people I've hired over the years and you know, everything from a kindergarten teacher to a door-to-door insurance sales guy to lots of young people who, you know, had worked one political campaign, maybe had been a, a deputy field director, which really meant they were knocking on doors for a living. So some folks with some political experience, but not certainly in digital. You talked earlier about tragedy of the commons, race to the bottom sort of stuff that you've seen in, in digital campaigning, particularly email fundraising. How did you navigate trying not to do too much of that, which I assume you're saying you did? And what's your sense of how well other firms that you competed with did and kind of the state of play now with that problem? I always believed that there were sort of two basic approaches or, or, or two two poles on the spectrum. At one end were the folks, and your listeners will recognize this, send 30, 40, 50, 60 emails a month on behalf of a client, repeat emails over and over again. If they seem to be working, just copy and paste them, send it again, make them shrill, these sort of high volume screeds. And frankly, in some cases, sort of try and trick people into giving money. Whether that's sort of saying, you know, your your Biden membership will be canceled if you don't give today or that kind of thing. Things that look like like bills. It's far, far worse, to be clear, on the Republican side. But uh, at one end were those, those kinds of folks. And where I was at Mandate Media, we were absolutely committed to the idea that what you're working with is not a list. It's a collection of humans that care about you. And you wouldn't walk into a room, you know, a party with a bunch of your friends and just start get up on the couch and start demanding money. You'd engage in a conversation and, and you try and be thoughtful and you would, you know, alert people to the, the urgency of, of the day when that's appropriate. But the rest of the time you educate, you elucidate, you make people laugh, you tell them good stories. You want to bring them along. And to me, that was always the approach at Mandate Media. It's why I think the firm survived and a lot of others went by the wayside. I think it's what's happening today. We're seeing multiple firms who really either were founded during the Trump era or really came into their to scale during the Trump era collapse right now. Who's collapsing? I'm not, I'm not really aware of that. Veracity has sold uh, out. There was an announcement a couple of days ago that Fireside campaigns is going away, and I'm sure every single one of them has had has a very unique story uh, about what's gone gone sideways in their firms. But I think that what we're seeing here is this tragedy of the commons, where too many firms are engaging in bad behavior, and as a result, it is making it harder and harder for members of Congress, other politicians, candidates to raise money to build a, a list of of you know people who care about them. Because even if you're doing it right, you're now living in an ecosystem where those inboxes are jam-packed full of Nancy Pelosi telling you that the world is about to end and she's going to shoot a puppy unless you give money today. And so even a, a, a well-meaning elected official trying to communicate thoughtfully struggles. 
to get their, their story out. Doesn't mean it's not possible. Mandate Media is thriving. They're growing and bringing on clients and hiring staff. They're doing great. My successors are doing a great job. Uh, very proud of them. Uh, but um, it is it is an increasing challenge, and I and I worry a lot for the overall mission of Democrats and the Democratic Party to fight back against the forces of of autocracy and tyranny in this country. If we can't find a way to connect with our fellow humans in a human way and and really use these digital tools for their highest and best use, which is organizing people who share values to come together and to do good things and not just give me money, give me money. It's the quarterly deadline. Give me money. There are a lot of changes afoot in that space in terms of deliverability, in terms of firms changing their tactics. I've had people on who feel that the vendors who send emails should be part of changing how they deal with opt-in versus more spammy stuff or scammy stuff. What do you think is the trajectory and where do you think the responsibility can be located to fix this if it if the incentives for any particular campaign are not working? Well, one of the things happening, uh, we were just talking about the behavior of the digital firms. The other thing that's happening, of course, is the behavior of the technology platforms. Apple has implemented the Apple Mail privacy platform, which makes it much harder to track performance of emails. Google has been squeezing down on its spam filtering and uh, experimented with removing the spam filters, which was kind of lovely for a minute, uh, but then have cracked it back down on it. Facebook has dialed down the volume on political content. Elon Musk has lost his mind, and so uh, Democrats are abandoning Twitter, and I'm going to keep calling it Twitter, as we all shift to threads, which, is, of course, is owned by Facebook. I've been very explicit about how they're going to turn down the volume on, on politics there. So it's harder and harder to find your way through to the audience. It's harder and harder to build an audience. And for now, it means people have been doubling down on bad behavior, like buying large volume lists just sending relentless numbers of emails. If something doesn't work, do it more. seems to be the, the approach that a lot of folks are taking. I'm actually hopeful that the technology platform tightening up is going to really force democratic digital firms into a space where they're going to have to behave better. If you want to get through the filters, you've got to actually communicate with people authentically and in ways that 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 bring them along, get them to opening emails. I would far rather have 10,000 people on my email list that care deeply about my candidate and want to see them succeed than 200,000 people on the list who don't give a damn and don't read the emails. The folks who will survive will be the folks who understand that, that that's the right approach and can convince politicians that the days of easy money are over and they need to actually invest money, but much more importantly, time, literally like give it months to work out, you know, and the sort of the, the time in terms of the energy to actually develop good content. That's what it's going to take. The sooner we can get out of this sugar rush approach, we'll break the fever and we'll, we'll get back to the way that digital should be used, which is to organize people. We're going to get out of the inbox too. I mean, here we're talking about the inbox as the primary tool. I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, Folks trying to figure out how do you get out of the inbox? How do you, how do you communicate to, with people through other means? 
not just texting, which is becoming the same sort of cesspool that email inbox has become, but different kinds of social media apps, other ways of communicating. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I know that that's the direction it's got to go. There's a number of firms that sell essentially donor lists that are attached to digital behavior, the grassroots analytics and their competitors. What do you think is their role in this space? Do you use that? Do you think their role is a positive or negative one, or how do you see that? Well, it's, it's a hard question because, of course, there's a version of, of what they're doing that is, I mean, helpful for a campaign. You got to go raise some money today. So who are the best people to ask for money? Why do they rob the banks? That's where the money is. Why do you call the donors? That's where the money is. So I've certainly been a customer, a client of some of those firms and bought lists. I do think, though, that it does contribute to the sort of the sense of like, from the donor perspective of, I gave 20 bucks to some candidate, and now I'm getting emails from all over the planet. They're frustrated. They think that incorrectly that ActBlue shared their email. ActBlue doesn't do that. They think possibly correctly that the campaign they donated to swapped or gave away their email list. It's possible. It's also possible that, you know, you do appear on publicly listed contribution reports and folks can take that mailing address and match it to an email. There are data brokers in the world. All of that leads to a tremendous amount of sort of frustration on the part of our donors, the very people that we're counting on to save our democracy, those grassroots donors. And if they're given up on the enterprise of funding political campaigns, we're in big, big trouble. So- Obviously, you've learned a lot over 20 years plus of, of doing this about what works, what doesn't work. It seems like it was a good fit for your interests and your skill set. What led you over time to decide, I want to get out of this, I want to sell the firm? Yes, it was absolutely the, the right challenge for my particular skill set and my particular set of interests, technology, math, writing, politics, strategy, competitiveness. But, you know, I did it for, for 22 years. I turned 50 this past summer and thought, well, if I'm going to do something else with my career, now's the time to do it. Megan and Craig, who I absolutely adore uh, and are incredibly talented, they were looking for new challenges too and realized those two things were synced up. So sold the firm to them. It's a big new challenge for them. They're learning a lot. And I believe having a good time. Um, and for me, I've, I've gone over to Strategies 360, which is the largest public affairs firm on the West Coast. I'm in the Oregon office as a, as a senior vice president, working on a lot of Oregon projects, but actually also working across the country because I have a network across the country. And what's interesting about a place like Strategies 360 is the old place, Mandate Media, was basically because we were so good at email fundraising, that was the only thing we we did. And that's fine. The, we were really good at it. I was really good at it. But at Strategy 360, I get the opportunity to, to basically tackle any kind of public policy problem. Anybody with a public policy problem is a potential client. And that's like everybody. And the tools available at 360 uh, include uh, the whole range of public affairs tools from lobbying, though I'm not a lobbyist, polling, strategic communications, crisis communications, campaign management, web engineering, direct mail, through marketing, branding, advertising, like all digital, all of it is available there. It's just super exciting to be part of a much larger team, to not have to run that team, and to tackle complex problems with a range of solutions. To me, that's it's fun. I want to take you back to selling this company because I, I talk to a lot of political entrepreneurs on this podcast, and I also 
think that they have interest and some others hopefully in the audience have interest in that notion of selling. And a lot of times if you want to sell a firm, you can sell it to a firm that competes with you or someone who is rolling up firms like that. Selling it to your own employees can be difficult because a lot of times they don't have the money to pay for the value of the firm, except maybe over time. To the extent that you're willing to share it, how did you make that arrangement work for you and for your successors? Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing to recognize is that a lot of political consulting firms, particularly those run by a single owner, and, and I should be very clear here, my my wife, Carrie Weinkoop, was a critical partner of this whole process all along. But as a married couple who owned a, a firm, a lot of the intellectual property, <laughs> a lot of the value of the firm lives in your head. It can be really challenging to sell a firm if if you leave, what you know, firm has no value, can be a thing that people would think. And so for me, it was a multi-year process before, before I think I even really understood that what I wanted to do was to sell the firm. Certainly before I told Megan and Craig that they were potential buyers, really started to think about how do we build systems that make me optional in the process, and just really tackling every part of the business. How do we onboard clients? How do we service those clients weekly, monthly, quarterly? How do we do the reporting on the work that we do? Who does the writing and the editing? How do we handle technology pieces? How do we offboard clients when they win or lose or we get fired or whatever? You know, like really thinking through every piece of the system and making myself as optional as possible. And then really putting a lot of the client contact in the hands of the two VPs. Again, that was the thing that was underway even before we made the pitch to them. But then once we sort of even broached the topic, it was like, let's really aggressively do this. It took about eight months to complete the sale from, hey, guys, we think you should think about buying this, to signing the paperwork and closing the deal, which I guess is pretty fast. Maybe it's nine months. I'm not going to discuss the specific of the deal, but sort of the ways that you, you, know, you can sell a business for cash, you can sell a business for a long-term loan or the owner essentially loans the, the buyers the money and they pay over time. They can go out and get a loan. There's any number of ways to sort of skin that cat. Uh, it does require the owners to the, the new the buyers to have decent credit and some loose cash available so you're not going to sell it to you know a 23 year old kid not for real money anyway by the way it's, Craig and Megan are you know both in their in their 40s and they're serious and capable people it actually wasn't that difficult for them to pull together the financing to make it happen did you have any compunction about selling it did you feel like a loss did you feel uh, a relief what, what were your emotions around that parting with this thing that you built? I was ready to go. There's a, a certain level of excitement and relief, just sort of pure joy in knowing that it's going to survive me. I built something and I'm very proud of what I built there. And to see them um, doing well makes me tremendously happy. You know, there are times where I'm like, oh, I just saw so-and-so just announced for office. Man, I'd love to do that launch. And then I get over it in about 30 minutes and think, no, I'm, I really am glad to be out of that business. I needed the, the change and I, I needed the sort of shift into a new, a new kind of career. I know you did some work redistricting, working on Portland, right? And how it is governed subsequently in the time between the new job and, and selling this firm. 
There is a podcast recently out where you're interviewed at length about that. And I think if people are super interested in that, I'd refer them to that. I don't want to duplicate it. But can you summarize briefly why you did that and what you learned? Yeah, that podcast, by the way, is the down ballot from from Daily Coast. What happened here in Portland is we're shifting from a, a city council that has four members of our council plus a mayor elected citywide to one in which we have 12 members of the council plus a mayor. The 12 members of the council will be elected from four districts, so three members from each of four districts. They're going to run in a single race, so there are three winners in a ranked choice voting environment. Uh, a multi-member ranked choice voting environment. And I was appointed by the mayor, uh, along with 12 others, to serve on what was called the Independent Districting Commission. We had to draw the first ever district lines for city council in Portland. That was an effort that went from February to August. So it really was very busy over the course of the summer after I sold my firm. And it was, I would just say, an extraordinary opportunity to really engage with the city that I love and uh, to learn a lot about it. I've lived here my whole life, but really to, to explore every neighborhood. And I'm literally out there driving around going like down certain streets, like that neighborhood. Yeah, it's like that neighborhood and, and so forth. And the ability to actually have our hands directly on the, on the districting effort. We weren't proposing a map that the council would ratify. We were drawing the map. Actually, the, the public service of it was exhilarating. I hope it works out well. You'll have to uh, write about it or share that down the road. I think we're going to have a lot of commentary. Uh, so the, all 12 of the seats are up this uh, November of 2024. Would you ever so run for one of them? I'm not going to run for state council, no. But I have a lot of friends who are already. So all 12 seats are up in 2024. Half of them will be for two-year terms, half for four-year terms, so that in the future we'll rotate six every election cycle. And, of course, we're also shifting how our, our city is governed. We're now going to have a city manager, the mayor hires, to run the bureaus. So Portland's in a in a sort of a you know James Madison kind of moment where we're going to completely reinvent our city government over the next couple of years. Fascinating. I feel like when I talk to political consultants or political operatives right now, there's something reassuring about the ongoing democratic practices. We're still doing our democracy on a local level on a national level. We're still having elections. We're still running for office. We're still competing. But it is regular politics in an irregular time for the democracy when there there is a decent possibility that the next president could be named Trump. And when the population itself is expressing often a incomplete commitment to democracy, if you look at surveys, how do you think about politics right now. Do you think it's a lot different? Do you think it's pretty much the same between when you were going all these years and Trump and beyond? Oh, it's very different. I worry a lot about the future of America because we now have one of our major political parties is at least led by or dominated by a group of folks that don't appear to actually believe in democracy. It's important to remember right? That the Democratic candidate for president has won more votes for the presidency in every election since 1992, with the exception of 2004. And yet, we've had Republican presidents in that time. I worry tremendously that when the voters vote, they should get what they voted for. And I worry that when we don't do that, we teach the voters that 
that democracy doesn't work. It's like they're, they're flipping a light switch and, and, and the light isn't coming on. And that's true, I think, when it comes to the Electoral College. I think it's true when it comes to the filibuster. You know, if the Republicans take back the U.S. Senate, they should be able to move policy through the U.S. Senate. I'm with Jeff Merkley on that. We have to make it so that when when elections happen, there are policy consequences to those those elections and that an election should be won by the candidate who got the most votes. And we should all recognize that when you have elections, they're run fairly and cleanly and securely by humans who are fallible, who occasionally will make mistakes. But that doesn't mean we undermine the very basic premise of democracy itself. And it is challenging to, to be engaged in the process and practice and business of politics at a time when there's an actual very real threat to our democracy. And, and I don't even know how to tackle that, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there is this, this problem of you know, people denying election results or the system itself favoring one party over the other, like in the Electoral College, without re- reflecting the, the national vote. But there's also another problem, which is that countries sometimes vote illiberal leaders in. They actually win elections. If you look at Turkey or you look at uh, Poland or you look around the world, sometimes you, you vote against your own democracy in the long run. And then somebody comes into power who takes rights away, who moves you backwards on some democratic scale. That could happen too. It absolutely could. And it's the result of the problem that, that you know, when democracy doesn't work, when, when, again, when voters vote for policy change and they don't get it, they lose faith in democracy itself. And so along comes a leader who says, only I can fix it. A leader that says, what's more important, what did Mike Lee of Utah say? Democracy isn't the highest value. Doing what's right for our families is. You have folks who will say the, the policy outcome, shall we say, is more important than, than democracy itself. And that to me is really dangerous. You do see it around the world. And we always thought that America was somehow immune from that. But of course, we're not. We need to figure out how to reach people in a way that helps them understand that that sometimes you lose elections. And that means you don't always get your way. But that's okay, because the wheel will turn and you'll get your way later. And that's okay, because that's how democracy is supposed to work. We take turns driving the ship and we all do our best at it. It doesn't mean you sink the ship when you don't get your way. Is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? No, I don't think so. Well, it's been really nice to get the chance to talk to you. I've seen your name. I've seen Mandate Media probably for the whole extent of your run. I congratulate you on coming to the other end of that since that was your decision and glad that you've been fighting the fight for all these years. Anything else you want to say? No. Uh, this is great. Really appreciate you taking the time and, and um, getting a chance to, to to talk to your listeners. I think The Great Battlefield is a, is a fantastic podcast, and I learn a lot from the folks that you interview. Thank you. That was Kari. He is at strategies360.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network, 
Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.